0: Low Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
1: Day four of the Joseph Banas murder trial, and prosecutors are still in charge, but it is the defense that was digging in today. Eric King has been covering the trial since the opening day. He's live at the Judicial Center with the very latest. Eric?
2: Yet yeah, today the defense team is really digging in its heels, trying to prove that Joseph Baynes is the only person who has continually told the truth, the whole truth about that night in December of 2009 that left 37-year-old James Carroll dead. The defense says it was Joseph Baynes who was first to talk to police in June of 2010, telling them there was a body buried in the basement of the home he shared with his boyfriend Jeffrey Munt and identifying it as James Carroll. Bainis says Munt is the killer. Munt blames Baynes. The defense hammered in on homicide detective Colin King trying to paint Munt as the one consistently not telling the truth. Police say initially Munt claimed he had no idea
0: who the victim was, but then... He kind of slipped up, we called him on it. He, he said, Jamie or something along those lines. That's
2: right, That's right. you remember that, yes, sir. Exactly what happened. The defense presses. Even when you get back here, after he has told you that he knew more about it, he
0: continues
2: to lie to you,
0: doesn't he? Yes, sir. And we
2: know that because we know darn well that he knew the guy's
0: name, right? Well, we, we didn't until he slipped up and Until he set. said
2: Complicating the case even more for jurors, clips of the original police interviews where Baynes and Munt tell different versions of the same story.
1: I didn't do it. I didn't want to be part of this whole thing. But he came upstairs and he said that I would get my down there
2: and help him or else I'd be going into that hole with Jamie. The insistence that the hole be dug larger because that was the hole that was reserved for me. If you are one of the many who's been following us on Twitter as we've been live tweeting this case, you know this now sets us up for the prosecution's main event. We're expecting Jeffrey Munt himself to be on the stand as early as Monday. We're live downtown. I'm Eric King, WLKY News.
0: Hello and welcome to episode two hundred and six of Who Killed? I am your host Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Evergreen Podcasts and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, I have a very prolific author and historian joining me to discuss his latest book, and that is one David Domine. And welcome to the show, David.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your crazy schedule to, uh, you know, to join me and to discuss uh, this latest book. Um, now, you are an author and historian. Could you give us a little brief overview about what it is that you cover and have covered in the past, and then what the book is is about?
1: Yeah. So, um, I am based in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm not from. Louisville originally. I'm from Wisconsin. I ended up here in the 1990s. Uh, my plan was to do some time at grad school and get out of town. I had no desire to come to Louisville, Kentucky. I'd never been here before, but I ended up falling in love with the city, and I stayed. Um, I've stayed in the city like spent half my life here, so it's it's my my new hometown. But um, there is a part of town called Old Louisville. It's one of the largest historic preservation districts in the United States. There's 45 square blocks of old houses, roughly 1,400 old homes and mansions. And so uh, that's where I lived when I first moved here. And I just, I just fell in love with the neighborhood and all these great Victorian houses. And then um, I started hearing stories. People started sharing stories and legends about the neighborhood. And in 1999, I actually bought um, uh, a Victorian house. On 3rd Street, which is kind of the old Millionaire's Row part of town. Uh, my house was a small house by old Louisville standards. It was only about 4,000 square feet, had six bedrooms. A typical <laughs> house in Louisville is like 6,000 square feet, has eight, 10 bedrooms. Wow. And uh, I moved in in November of 1999. And right before I moved in, the previous owner just casually mentioned that I'd be getting a ghost that came with the house. And I, I love ghost stories. I've always been fascinated by the the paranormal, but I don't really believe in ghosts. And so I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and signed the contract and moved in. And within two or three weeks, all these crazy things began happening in the house that she said would happen. She said there was a poltergeist named Lucy who liked to walk up and down the hallway on the second floor in the middle of the night. And sure enough, within two, three weeks, we began hearing footsteps going up and down the length of the hallway, always like between three and four in the morning. And Um, You know, I discovered old houses make a lot of noise But these weren't like random creaks and groans They were like footsteps And my cats and dogs started acting crazy Like Margaret, the previous owner, said they would And um, uh, the last thing she told me was uh, She says, I know you don't believe me, Dave But whatever you do, don't hang a picture on the wall here In the butler's pantry next to the kitchen Because Lucy, the ghost, she hates When you hang pictures on this wall If you hang a picture here, I guarantee you she'll knock it down well, I moved in and what's the first thing I did I hung a picture on that wall. And by the end of the day, it was on the floor. It was broken. We never could have a picture on that wall.
0: I have to it's ask, good. did you do, do it on purpose? Just a test? Or well, did you I just, just forget I, about it? As, as no, it, no,
1: I didn't. I didn't believe her. You know, oh, I, just, okay. I didn't sure. even think about it. Yeah, I, like, I, didn't, I didn't take it seriously. And then the first time it fell, all of a sudden I remembered what she said. And, you know, but um, long story short. Um, I never saw the ghost I was hoping to see, you know, something that would make me a believer. But I did have all these things happen that were paranormal in nature. And so um, that first year in the house, that's when I began to make friends in the neighborhood and met, you know, my neighbors and fellow homeowners. And the average house down there is like 135 years old. So they all have stories. And people began telling me about their ghostly antics in their houses. And some of them... Knew about scandals and murders that had taken place on the premises. Some of them had family legends that were passed on, and uh, I was amazed when I moved to that part of the city, when I moved to Louisville, actually, that the city wasn't doing more to promote the neighborhood kind of as a tourist attraction. So I began writing these stories down, using the 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 ghost stories and the legends as a way to talk about more than just the supernatural. You know, I always tell people. You don't need to believe in ghosts to enjoy a good ghost story. There's history, there's architecture, there's real-life characters and the local flavor. So I began um, writing books about the the ghostly goings-on in the neighborhood. At the time, I was actually a food writer, so I was working on my first cookbook in the house. And um, so I started writing about um, Kentucky things, and and especially old Louisville. And people, uh, they began wanting more of my books, and so... I kept writing, and then they wanted to see the places that they were reading about, so we started a tour company, and we give walking tours of the neighborhood. But um, I moved out of that house in 2008, and I was looking for a different place, and right around the corner from where I was living on Third Street, I heard... The Richard Robinson house had come on the mansion. The, the Richard Robinson house was huge. It was twice the size of my house, more than twice the size. It had 12 bedrooms. was over 10,000 square feet. But I She's... heard – Yeah, I heard they had the original wine cellar from when the family built it in 1898. And I got into my head that I wanted a wine cellar. <laughs> and so I made <laughs> a point – Because we yeah, all need one not, at one point in our lives, right? Not, yeah. <laughs> And so uh, I made an appointment with the real estate agent, and I went and looked at the house, and it was just a, it was a mess, you know. The house I had lived in for the previous eight years, it needed some work, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a major project. It was decorating and, and, and minor repairs and things like that. But this house was in really bad shape. The kitchen looked like it had been bombed out. The carriage house was falling apart in the back alley. Um, there were still a lot of beautiful fixtures like the grand stairs and stained glass windows and fireplace mantles and molding and beautiful hardwood floors throughout the house. But it just needed a lot of work. And so I could tell kind of right away when I went and it was probably going to be too big of a project for me to complete. So um, I was already deciding probably I went buy the house. But I wanted to go see the wine cellar before I you know, said <laughs> no for sure. Right. So I went down to the basement. It was like a, a, a maze-like worn of rooms, and the wine cellar was a corner room. It was one of two rooms in the basement that still had a dirt floor, and you could barely tell it was a wine cellar. You could see like the outlines of shelves that had been on the wall. Um, previous tenants had um, they had thrown in boxes of you know junk and stuff, and it was just a mess. So, so I said no, thank you, and I um I uh, left, and I was. Uh, leaving the front steps, I was going down to the sidewalk and a man rushed up the steps past me, kind of almost bumped into me and didn't even you know acknowledge me didn't even say excuse me and he had the appointment with the agent right after I did and uh, I didn't really think anything of it until two years later it was the morning of June 18 2010. I was um, watching TV and uh, drinking my morning coffee. Be- Before I went off to teach, I teach at a local university here. And all of a sudden, a newsflash popped on the screen and this familiar looking house popped up a big, boxy, red brick house. And then a mugshot popped up. And I thought, he looks familiar. Who is that? And then they uh, put a name up. Uh, They identified the guy in the mugshot as Jeffrey Munt. And all of a sudden, Pieces started to fall into place. It was the house I had looked at. Jeffrey Munt was the guy who had the appointment with the real estate agent that morning. I looked at it. So I said no. He said yes. Uh, and he's a Louisville guy. He had just moved back from Chicago, though. And um, the night before, so the evening of June 17, 2010, around 930 in the evening, uh, police uh, received a, a, a call from 911. 911. And it was Jeffrey Munt who was calling from 1435 South 4th Street. He was barricaded in a bedroom on the second floor because he said his boyfriend, uh, another local guy who had just moved back from Chicago, uh, uh, his name is Joseph Bannis, locals call him Joey, He's from a very prominent family here in town, but unfortunately he was like the black sheep of the family and had drug issues and um, had been to prison and things, but Uh, Jeffrey and uh, Joey, they met on an internet hookup site and they started dating and Joey had moved himself into the house and uh, they had been living together for a while but that evening, Jeffrey Munt called and told the police to come because Joey was trying to murder him. He was out in the hallway with a hammer, banging on the wooden door, trying to come inside and kill him. So the police responded. They uh, arrested uh, Joey Bannis. It was... Looking like he was trying to flee, the, the the house as right as they arrived, but they caught him and arrested him. And then, as they do, they took the two parties aside, and one officer questioned each of them to kind of get their uh, version of events. And that's when they began hearing grumblings about somebody knowing something where a dead body was buried. And they didn't take it seriously at first. They said a lot of times when you arrest people, you know, they'll make things up and try to bargain and you know leverage the situation. But um, Joey Bannis kept talking, and uh, he said he knew where the body of a guy named Jamie Carroll was. It was a guy from eastern Kentucky. He said he's been dead for seven months, and people don't even know he's missing yet. They still didn't believe him, but reluctantly a detective decided to call around and just double-check to make sure. And he started calling, and uh, within an hour or two, they found out, sure enough, a guy named Jamie Carroll from the eastern part of the state, had been missing for seven months. And that's when they realized that Joey Bannis knew something. And so they interrogated him all night long, and after a kind of cat-and-mouse game, he finally broke down and told them where the body was. And guess where the body was?
0: In the wine cellar. In the wine cellar. Now, I have to ask, before we get deeper, how long after you looked at this house... And they bought the house, or he bought the house, and then the body was just – or the phone call that led to the body. How long – what kind of time frame Not even were we talking two years.
1: Here? Not even two years. Okay. So it was fall of 2008 when we looked at the house. He was kind of slowly moving himself in, and then it was the next year, um, I believe, that he met uh, Joey Bannis, and he moved in. Um, so it was. It wasn't even two years from when I looked at the house and when the murder uh, made the news. And now, so, had, what,
0: they, had they done anything with the house, like you know, fixed it up or anything like along those lines? Yeah,
1: they had started. Um, Jeffrey. The plan was, I heard, he was going to turn it into a bed and breakfast, and he had restored a, a house before, and so he knew he knew some things. But um, that evening, when the police uh, showed up and and. Uh, heard about the body, Um, uh, A&E was in town, a show called The First 48, you know, was following the Louisville police around. Absolutely. um, Yeah, they used to film
0: in Cleveland all the time.
1: Yeah, it's been on a number of true crime shows. But um, uh, Joey Bannis told the police that Jamie Carroll had been killed the previous year. And for the, the last seven months, he had been buried in the dirt floor of the wine cellar. So the police rushed, they got a search warrant because Joey said they had workers scheduled to come over that week and concrete it all over. (laughs) And uh, maybe that very next day, he said. And so the police rushed, they got a search warrant, they came back and they started to dig. And uh, sure enough, four feet below the surface of the earth, they dug out a blue Rubbermaid container and in it were the remains of Jamie Carroll. He had been shot and stabbed. There was a sledgehammer to fit his body inside. Huh. And so uh, they were both arrested, Joey and Jeffrey, and they were charged with murder and eventually both admitted to covering up the crime and you know, hiding the body. But they both insisted the other had actually done the killing. And so three years later, uh, uh, 2013. We had the most scandalous murder trials Louisville had seen in a long time. They called it the trial of he said, he said, because they both pointed the finger at each other. I was just,
0: gonna, I was just thinking the same exact thing, That he said, yeah. he said. Uh...
1: And uh, they, they both had separate trials. And um, in exchange for the prosecution dropping the death penalty as an option, they both agreed to testify against the other. And uh, the prosecutor was a, a, a local woman named Ryan Conroy, And her argument, uh, her reasoning for this grisly murder of Jamie Carroll was basically, it was the guy's, um, their just general greed and depravity, their frenzied drug use. Uh, It turns out Jamie Carroll, among other things, was the guy's uh, drug dealer. And so the night in question, he had shown up in town. He was um, living and working in Lexington about an hour and a half and 15 minutes away from Louisville and he had shown up in town planning on turning himself in the next day to the Louisville authorities because he had some outstanding warrants and the plan was he was going to go to prison and do his time and try to come out and be on the straight and narrow. But before he turned himself in, he wanted one last night out on the town and he had been romantically involved with the two guys. They knew he was in town and they said, Well, come on over and bring lots of drugs, and we'll party with you. We'll send you off with a bang. And Jamie came, and he had lots of crystal meth, so they did drugs and other things all night. And as things were kind of winding down, that's uh, when the prosecution argued that the guy saw that Jamie Carroll had thousands of dollars in cash with him from his previous drug deals that day. And they concocted this scheme to kill him. Keep his drugs and money, you know, that would keep them going for a couple months. Because Jeffrey Munt, um, he had been working right down the road at the University of uh, Louisville. He was working as an IT consultant, and he was making like over a quarter million dollars a year. But he began showing up high and missing work. And so they had to let him go so no money was coming in to pay any of the bills. And so they were going to use Jamie's drugs and money to kind of keep them going for a couple months. They knew he was going to turn himself in and go to jail the next day, so they were thinking people won't miss him. And Jamie Carroll, any uh, anyway, was the kind of person he'd he'd go for months on end without talking to his own family and friends.
0: So and disappearing the, wouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah. And uh-huh. the
1: sad th- the sad thing is is had the guy shut up about it, they would have gotten away with murder because nobody knew Jamie Carroll was missing when he didn't show up to court the next day. Um, they didn't put out a bench warrant, which is standard procedure, you know. You get the person in the system, well, they dropped the ball. So nobody knew that he never showed up for his court date. His own mother didn't even know he was missing until the night of the 911 call. So had they shut up about it, the floor would have been concreted over, and who who knows if that, that body ever would have been found. But as
0: we know, it's it's harder to keep one you know yeah if one yeah. person knows it's one thing but if two people know well, yeah. it just jeopardized your whole situation
1: yeah exactly and so um when the trials began public sentiment kind of came down on the side of jeffrey munch you know he was this geeky it guy he had never had trouble until he you know with the law until he met joey joey on the other hand had been to federal prison numerous times they flew in witnesses who testified that they had seen him chase guys down the sidewalks in broad daylight with hunting knives, threatened to slash their throats in public. So he was- Over what? Um, Oh, different things. Um, He used to uh, bartend, and he claimed to have been part owner of a club. If people didn't tip him enough, he'd get mad. Um, He would uh, run credit card scams, you know. you'd You'd go to the bar where he tended, and you'd have a $60 tab at the end of the night. The next day you'd have $360 on your credit card uh, statement. He, he, he would cheat people. And then if they called him out on it, then he'd you know, get mad and, and threaten to kill them and stuff. So um, so basically were, he was a bully. Oh yeah, he, he, he was psychotic. and um, But in the courtroom he came across as very articulate and very uh, even keeled. His met, He never changed his story. Uh, it was kind of fascinating to see him on the stand. But um, so, so not surprising, when the verdicts came down, um, people weren't surprised that uh, Joey Bannis was convicted of all the major counts. Um, he got off on two of the minor counts, but you know, the big ones, murder and such, uh, he was convicted of, and he's in a, a prison outside of Louisville today. He got 25 to life, so he's not even halfway through his uh, time before he can get parole. Uh, More surprising was that Jeffrey Munt was acquitted of all but two minor charges, and he only got eight years for his part, and uh, he was out on parole in uh, 2014. And the reason I say surprising is because uh, by that point, Jeffrey Munt had been caught in some big lies on the the witness stand. And people began saying, you know, he sounds like the mastermind behind this all. He sounds like the one getting away with murder. And uh, I tended to agree with that because I was in the courtroom every day of those trials doing research for the book that would take me over 10 years to write. What, uh, um,
0: you know, because obviously I have to ask the question, what kind of inconsistencies... I, you would think of somebody this smart um, would be prepared for court, but I could see how the, you know, the jurors see this smart individual and they see this, you know, common criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, they
1: both were very articulate and uh, came across as very intelligent and they both came from upstanding families, you know. Um, yeah. So uh, who knows what the jury really thought when they saw both of them. But um, one of the inconsistencies was um, they uh, uh, they brought in a witness who was someone that worked with Jeffrey Munt um, at the university where he was the IT consultant. She was, like, in the main reception area. He saw her every day for, like, seven or eight months nonstop. He invited her out to lunch and things and um, she uh, called a tip line when the murder was uncovered because she started to make some connections. And so they brought her on the stand and she kind of um, uh, gave her uh, account of what she knew and why she suspected Jeffrey Munt. He had scratches on his neck and she kind of with the timeline she figured out that was about the time Jamie Carroll was murdered. But, um, they put Jeffrey Munt on the stand and he, he said he never had met her. He didn't know her, you know, so things like that. It was obvious he knew her. Um, and there were other situations where it was obvious he was lying. But, um, so he, you know, in 2014, he was out on parole and, um, no one's quite sure uh, where he is today. I, heard different things through the grapevine. But the weird thing is, is after the trial ended, and the trial itself was fascinating, just the courtroom drama, even today trying to figure out um, if the prosecution had it right, that they colluded, they killed Jamie Carroll together. Um, If that's true, we don't know, or whether or not it was one that did the killing and the other one was kind of swept up in it all. Um, There's just so many weird angles to the case. But after the trials ended... That's when all the really good stuff came out, because it turns out um, the house itself, the Richard Robinson house at 1435 South 4th Street, it kind of had a sinister reputation since the 1920s. It was known as a haunted house because of strange things that had gone on there. Of course, if you're an old Victorian house, you have to be a sanatorium at some time in your history, right? So in the 30s and 40s, there was a guy named Dr. Bandine. He was promising to cure people of cancer. But he was a snake oil salesman, and all these people were coming to, coming to him for treatment, you know, in high hopes and in droves, and they were dying and suffering under his care. And he had terrible bedside manner. He loved to tell his patients they were going to die to get a reaction out of them.
0: And yeah, I mean, geez, that's uh, mm, a little unethical. Yeah, and he was brought up
1: on, he was brought up on ethics charges and ruined in the end because of this. And he was, besides being a snake oil salesman, he was grossly overcharging people for these, um, these worthless uh, shots. And uh, he was even accused of killing his last two patients outright. So from that point forward, The house kind of took on a reputation as being a destroyer of lives because every three or four years, whoever moved in, it seemed like the house would claim another victim. There'd be financial ruin or catastrophic illness or a deadly accident. Every three or four years, it went on that way until the 1960s. That's when uh, a young nurse named uh, Pauline Boren moved in, and she managed to break the curse for a time. She was there for like over 20 years until one night, a guy she was renting a room to went berserk and savagely attacked her and he beat her so severely, it took two months, but she she died of her injuries at a local nursing home. And so then the house sat largely vacant for the next 10 years until Jeffrey Munt bought it.
0: And you were looking and, at to buy this house.
1: Yep, yeah. <laughs> I had the appointment right before him. Know,
0: knowing, knowing this stuff. You knew all this stuff. No, but, oh. I, but I didn't know
1: this at the time. Oh,
0: okay, okay. okay. So the first time I looked at it,
1: <laughs> this wasn't known. I was going to
0: say, man, you are...
1: <laughs> but I did look at it a second time, knowing this and uh, thought about buying it because um, after the guys were arrested, you know, the bank kind of took the house and it was listed for one hundred nineteen thousand dollars. No. And that's what it sold for eventually. Oh. And I was so tempted Um uh, I don't know.
0: The book might never have gotten done.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, one night, I not too long after the murder, I snuck into the house because the side door was wide open, and I went down to the basement, found the room where Jamie Carroll had been buried, and then I kind of obsessed about the house for the next two months. But then I woke up in my current house one night, and I thought, "Oh, if I were waking up in that house at three thirty in the morning, and you know, knowing that." person had been buried you know in the basement right below me i realized i'd get kind of freaked out so i that's when i decided no i don't think i'll i'll, I'll buy that house even if it's a bargain basement price but um no pun intended so, yeah so the the house just has a spooky history itself and then joey and jeffrey had a lot more going on than just a body in their basement that little corner room that wine cellar uh, when the sanatorium was there, that was the morgue. They were storing bodies down there. And um, doing my research, I met some of the police and detectives involved, and one of them gave me some good evidence that there was a cult meeting down there for a time. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, he showed me a document from the Vatican that showed an exorcism had taken place down there. There was this weird Catholic cult meeting. And um, Pauline Boren, her daughter, said... uh, in her later years, she was just a very trusting soul and she would rent out rooms, you know, to anybody. It was a drug dealer she had rented a room to, supposedly, that attacked her and killed her. But when she was older, you know, she was kind of frail and the house was falling down around her. And uh, had she been a little more mobile, she probably would have had a heart attack had she gone down to the basement where that little wine cellar room was because the guy she was renting the space to had an S&M club going down there for like a year and a half. And supposedly Joey and Jeffrey were... Uh, trying to revive the S and Up Club days, and had had some parties down there. And um, how big is found... this room? It's not that big. I mean, they couldn't have had too many people. You know, maybe a dozen or something. Oh, wow. Maybe they wanted people to be close together. But um, they found a picture uh, from one of Jeffrey's online dating profiles of him in a full-body black rubber suit. That was like his preferred attire at these parties, and that's when they started noticing comparisons between the murder of Jamie Carroll and what was happening at the Richard Robinson house with the murder house. Um, American Horror Story was in its first season, and that was on TV, and people started noticing all these weird coincidences between the two stories, and they started calling the house Kentucky's American Horror Story house. So... um, Yeah, and and it turns out Louisville has a thriving um, S&M scene, underground S&M scene. I learned a lot about that, um, talking to people and stuff. But Jamie Carroll, so he was their drug dealer, but he was also their uh, sometimes boyfriend. And Jamie Carroll was also a well-known drag queen. When he wasn't Jamie Carroll, he was Ronica Reed, the pageant queen. He had won Miss Gay Pride, West Virginia, the year before he was murdered. So you throw a drag queen in, the story's got it all, you know. Yeah. But... um, the icing on the cake is Joey and Jeffrey also were counterfeiters. And up on their second floor, they had an operation where they were taking dollar bills, they were bleaching them in chemicals and then restamping them as 50 and 100 dollar bills. And uh, in April of 2010, so this is while Jamie's uh, Jamie Carroll's body was in the basement, the guys went up to Chicago. They checked into the Hyatt Regency on Wacker for what I assume was going to be a test run weekend because they wanted to see how good they were, how much fake money they could pass. And evidently they weren't very good because um, (laughs) they didn't even make it out of the hotel before they were arrested. They had given the doorman a fake hundred and he said he knew right away because it was still damp. It didn't feel right. And you know, they were high all the time. So they, they weren't paying attention to the little details I imagine, but the police came and arrested them and then they raided their rooms and in the room, they found fifty-four thousand dollars in counterfeit money, in addition to bags and bags of date rape drugs, bomb-making supplies, guns, forged documents, and fake identities.
0: <laughs> what the hell are these guys? I mean, so, <laughs> they all this yeah. is the full the convenience store of uh, of terror.
1: <laughs> yeah. So supposedly, they were going to uh, do a bank heist while they were in Chicago because Joey had connections. Um, from his prison days in Chicago with organized crime. And he had robbed a bank in Louisville, and so they were gonna kinda kill two birds with one stone. But um, all the forged documents and the fake ID stuff kinda ties into another whole bizarre angle of the case. And that is when um, Joey Bannis took the stand. His, well, b- They both claimed to have been living in fear of the other for the, the seven months that they had been living in the house. And they were afraid that the other was going to go kill their pets and their family and both claimed to have been living in terror of the other. Well, Joey, he said his reason was especially valid because Jeffrey Munt had told him that he had worked as an assassin for the CIA and had killed over 30 people for them. And um, when that came out in court, when people just kind of rolled their eyes, because Jeffrey Munt is kind of geeky IT kind of guy. And uh, he, when, when he got on the stand, he said that was only role-playing. They like to do sexual role-plays, and that was his character as a role-play. Uh, Joey Bannis insisted no. He had told him about certain um, assassinations he had carried out and even showed him newspaper articles. And the funny thing is, uh, we, we found out later that Jeffrey Munt is uh, an expert in Eastern European history and culture. And he speaks several Eastern European languages. And hmm. that kind of so- sounds kind of like CIA kind of stuff, doesn't it?
0: A little bit. They, um,
1: one news, uh, one news outlet here did a brief story about the supposed CIA connection, but then the next day the story was down and no one ever really talked about it. Hmm. And when Jeffrey Munt was, uh, released on parole, in 2014 they arrested him right away and they took him up to Chicago because when the guys were arrested for the murder they'd been arrested for the counterfeit money charges you know and so they took him up to Chicago supposedly for that trial and the fact that he had forged documents and um, uh, other fake things and so I I called around. I tried to find out where his trial was, and it, it took me two weeks before I finally found a helpful clerk who was able to find him in the system, and uh, she stayed on the phone with me for an hour and said, yeah, it's going to be at the Cook County Courthouse, but they keep moving this around, and they keep giving it different judges, and then another judge takes over, and so she finally, this was the day before the trial was supposed to happen, she finally said, okay, it's in, it's courtroom so-and-so, and she gave me the address and the exact uh, time the trial was supposed to happen and uh, the, the courtroom number. And so I drove up to Chicago and uh, went, went to the Cook County Courthouse, and I found the uh, courtroom, and there was no Jeffrey Munt there. He wasn't even on the docket, you know, the listing of trials that were going to take place. And I went through the whole courthouse looking at all the dockets, and there was no mention of Jeffrey Munt. Anywhere, So nobody knows whatever happened with that.
0: And so that was a lot. Is that the last of what we've heard of him?
1: Yeah. um, Someone uh, the great the the word is on the street is he changed his name and uh, went to Europe and is working under an assumed identity. Um, In the meantime, I've been told, no, that's not true. Um, I can't make any official announcements, but. Um, You might be seeing my book or one of my recent books um, on the screen pretty soon because um, Hollywood has uh, heard about it and it's a really interesting story. And uh, some people are doing some investigating and they think they've tracked him down, but they won't tell me where he is. Interesting. I was was going to say,
0: where are the producers knocking on your door anyway for this story? (laughs) Because this is almost um, like, um, it reminds me of uh, Good, you know, what is it? Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Exactly.
1: That was was my intent all along. I didn't shy away from that. And I even thank John Barrett in the book. You know, I I remember when I was reading Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, I was living in my house on Third Street and I kind of stopped and I looked around and thought, I thought, oh, Louisville has all this. I got we, we got weird people and drag queens all over the place and we got old mansions and 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 old money and nouveau riche. and we got lots of eccentrics and uh Just like so Savannah. I always Yeah, so I always strove to kind of capture the quirky um, bits about the city. And that's kind of the, the title kind of pays homage to that. The book is called A Dark Room in Glitterball
3: City.
1: And um, one of them is, um, they call us Happy Birthday City because sisters Patty and Mildred Hill wrote the Happy Birthday song here in 1893. So this is the birthplace of the most sung song in the English language. It's also where back at the height of the world's disco craze in the 70s and 80s, all the disco balls were coming from. And uh, the company is still around today. It's called Omega National Products. And they... um,
0: kudos for them for surviving the disco ball era (laughs) back
1: then they had a crew of like 25 women who cranked them out each by hand each of them made like at least 20 a day of those there's only one left though her name's yolanda baker and she's something of a local legend she's known as the reigning queen of disco balls and Mm -hmm. the last handmaker of disco balls in the world left is what they say but um she's getting ready to retire and she doesn't make as many as she used to she's literally makes like six or seven a week now that's a lot because by the mid um, 90s China had overtaken with mass production you know so Louisville doesn't make the most anymore but Louisville the company is still around and all the iconic disco balls you've probably seen on TV and in the movies those are Louisville disco balls that's what John Travolta was dancing under in Saturday Night Fever right if anyone's old enough like me to remember soul train don cornelius he had that huge one that was like their most famous one uh back in the day but it's not surprising a louisville company would have this tradition because it was a kentuckian in 1917 already who first patented something called the myriad reflector that was the early disco ball and throughout the decades they've called it a glitter ball that name sticks around here a lot omega national products officially calls theirs a mirror ball but most people know it as a disco ball so glitter ball city that's another one of our our quirky little nicknames or or, or one of our claims to fame and uh, people have really been embracing the disco ball craze lately a lot of Louisvilleians—it's like you're not a real louisvillian if you don't have a omega national products mirror ball you know in your house that's awesome
0: yeah how do you go about um now this is just a little bit about the craft i mean like when you're exploring you know the ins and outs of old louisville and you're trying to get the you know like you mentioned the mystique and sort of the the unique characters you know who is it that you first go to when you start that research
1: so you know this book was different you know this is my first like true crime book and okay so my first my first line of defense was doing the research by sitting in the trials, being in the courtroom, and observing and taking notes, and trying to you know, formulate an opinion. And so within a couple of years, I realized I wasn't just going to take the true crime approach, straight true crime approach. I realized I could include some of my personal history and information you know, my process as a writer. And I could bring in colorful characters from the neighborhood and all the quirky things about the city. And um, it took me so long to write, partially because, you know, I got into my head that I needed to be able to talk to Joey and Jeffrey, the accused killers, and get their version of events before I could finish the story. And they refused to talk to me. And uh, so about seven or eight years in... You know i realized they weren't going to talk to me and i would just have to build that into the story and so it was those last two or three years that's when i really uh got to work i obtained um the courtroom tapes because kentucky tapes all their trials and i watched everything and uh, compared my notes you know saw some things i'd gotten wrong and then i transcribed a lot of it myself so a big chunk of my process was watching the trials and recreating the courtroom scenes that were most pivotal and then the good thing about uh, obtaining like the transcripts and uh, the tapes after the fact um, when you get the tapes after the trial has ended you get all the extra stuff that you don't get to see if you're you know in the in the audience in the courtroom for example anytime the uh, prosecution objects and the defense and the prosecution have to go talk to the judge at the bench and he hits a button and the courtroom was filled with white noise. You get to hear all the stuff that they were talking about after the fact. You also get to see the voir dire, them questioning the jurors and how the jurors were kind of weeded out and stuff. And you get all the um, the pretrial uh, motions that the public wasn't allowed to see. So uh, I got to see a lot of interesting things that didn't come out uh, during my sitting through the trials themselves. So that took a big uh, chunk of work. But when I realized that Joey and Jeffrey weren't going to talk to me, by that time, enough distance had you know, come between the murder and where I was at that point in my life, that I was able to kind of look back and put kind of a memoir uh, twist to the story. So I was able, especially during the pandemic, I was able to use that time to kind of look back and reflect on things and um, so the book has a prologue and an epilogue and both of those involve me uh, looking at the house and considering buying it but in the um, epilogue I'm able to um, update people on what happened since the trials ended and um, a lot of the characters in the book uh, what happened to them and things like that so it was um, it was an interesting process so um, this is a true crime book but it's a memoir as well because i was kind of directly involved in some form or other
0: and it covered so many years of your life yeah. i mean it is yeah and did you by chance uh, interview anybody that went to their um s and m club in the in the basement
1: um i had people approach me and tell me that they had been to certain parties there um some of the stuff I heard was kind of dubious. That like the timeline wasn't matching up. Some people, you know, they wanted attention, and I was like, well, "Joey and Jeffrey weren't even together then. He wasn't in Louisville then." So I had to weed he out. had to some insert stuff. themselves into the story. Yeah, I had yeah. to weed out some stuff, but um, yeah, a couple people said they had been at some of their parties, and um, yeah, of course, when the book came out, then of, then of course a lot of people got in touch with me, like with the really good information. You know that that I could have used during the book. You know,
0: that, thanks so much, yeah, guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I could probably write a second. Like, I just saw the new.
0: I was going to say, stuff. where's the uh, where's the sequel? Yeah, and uh, like for example, um, you know, the book is published, and you re- receive a phone call. Like, what kind of information are we talking about here? Like, just weird stuff that weird happened in the like, house,
1: um, or like Jeffrey Munt. He was just. He was an odd character. He he liked to feign a British accent. A lot of people thought he was British. Like, he, he was in charge of this big IT project at Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, That's okay. where he made a big name for himself. And, uh, for example, one of his co-workers got in touch, and uh, she said that uh, they thought he was British. Like, for the first six months, they knew him because he would, like, use a fake british accent and when i had seen him in town he would always um i would run into him like at a, a local a breakfast place and he'd say top of the morning to you you know he was just he was so cheesy and so then people started carrying an
0: touched. umbrella as well
1: yeah sometimes he did and so um <laughs> someone um they said they had uh, been at a uh they had all gone to a conference together and they talked about how demeaning he was to like the the parking lot attendant because uh, she had messed up his change. And Jeffrey thought he was smarter than everyone else. And um, one of his coworkers said that um, he would only accept because he was like the main guy in the department and people had to submit reports. He would only accept things in a certain font and 14 point um, size and stuff. If it wasn't that way, he'd throw it back at them and have fits. And he had cats, but he named all his cats and his pets after charles dickens' characters uh, primarily from the pickwick papers and if if people were smart enough to know that he had named his pets after dickens' characters they were good enough to be his friends and for him to to hang out with if they didn't get that connection then they were beneath him so just weird little things like that you know idiosync- idiosyncrasies
0: and so that makes me wonder you know what in the hell the attraction was between jeffrey and joey well, supposedly,
1: um, and this is another thing where we found out that uh, Jeffrey had lied. So um, his, his defense, which was very successful, he had a great defense team, they painted him as a victim. And they were able to show that Joey Bannis had kind of picked him as a mark and had a plan you know, to seduce him and use him. And um, he had a a GPS tracker installed on the car so he could watch where Jeffrey was going and stuff. And all kinds of stuff came out about uh, Joey Bannis. But supposedly Jeffrey Munt had just um, been in a long-term relationship and his boyfriend uh, broke up with him by text. And so he had come back to Louisville to kind of lick his wounds. That's what the defense said. That's what Jeffrey said. Well, one of his co-workers at Northwestern said, that's not the case. Michael never did that. Uh, they said Jeffrey Munt tried to do a power grab uh, in his department and demanded more money. And they told him no. So he kind of left town with his tail between his legs. He was embarrassed. And uh, so there was a thing where he got caught in a lie. But supposedly, you know, he was attracted to Joey, who was this bad boy. And... Um, He said at first he was attracted because he was very articulate, and he could talk about literature and stuff, and uh, he had a good sense of humor. So he said at first um, he was very attracted to him, but then he said he slowly kind of saw the psychotic side of him.
0: Now, did this information come out throughout the court uh, hearings? Which? Or did he actually, like, like, as far as, like, the information about Jeffrey and his, his own personal feelings about Joey, I mean, did he actually provide interviews at all to any reporters throughout any of this? Or has he been just, like, a, you know, a closed box no, since he was he, arrested? Yeah, he
1: has not been interviewed on the news or anything. But what happened is... Um, The night that they were both arrested and interrogated they recorded all of this so we have those tapes and in addition we have all the um footage from uh the first 48 program their camera crew filmed it all as well so there's the the actual tapes of the interrogation and then there's the the first 48 information as well and that's where we find out more about his feelings about joey
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about the first 48 stuff because, um, like we just briefly touched on it. And, uh, so they were there filming as they typically do. They usually put producers in a hotel and you know, when something comes in, they're usually on the scene pretty quickly. Uh, was this one of those episodes where they were actually called to the scene?
1: Yeah, they were, they were, I think they had just gotten in town. And the thing is, um, a lot of time, uh, if you watch the first 48, there's certain cities that pop up all the time, and so Louisville pops up all the time, and people are like, "What the hell's going on in Louisville?" Like, guys, crazy. Well, there's
0: so- same with Dallas. Yeah. Same with Cleveland. Well,
1: there's certain <laughs> cities that have contracts with them. You know, they get paid to do it. So it's not just that cities are are doing it for nothing. <laughs> they're doing it because they're getting
0: something. Or- crime-riddled as badly yeah. as they portray. Yeah. So
1: it's, Louisville is just one of the cities that has a contract with them. And they had um, a pretty um, established uh, relationship with a well-known detective who ended up being the lead detective in this case. And so because he was called in uh, the first 48, they were alerted and they their camera was there when they went to dig out the body.
0: That's See, that's just one of those serendipitous production moments oh, yeah. where you're like, wow, yeah. we are just sort of in the right place, at the right yeah, time. What, what are
1: the chances?
0: What are the chances? Yeah. Exactly. Right. And you said it took you 10 years to, to write this book. Yeah. I mean, just from beginning to end. And, um, I mean, that must've been quite the process and you've written a number of books though. I mean, yeah. Is this the one that you've like? Was this the hardest book that you've ever written? Yes. think?
1: Yeah, this was book number thirteen, and I'm hoping it's lucky number thirteen. It's actually doing pretty well. It's already in its second hardcover uh, printing, and the paperback is That's coming great. out in the spring. So it's actually it's doing pretty well. But yeah, this was definitely a big chunk of my life, and it took an emotional toll, you know, because I was getting some pushback. Some people didn't like the fact that I was kind of exposing the soft underbelly of the neighborhood and you know, whenever real people are involved, you're going to, you're going to piss some people off. And so I, I had some people angry at me and, uh, there were times where I had to just put the project on the back burner. You know, there were times where six months went by and I just, you know, I couldn't do it because it was getting so stressful. And especially as I was finding out details about the murder and stuff. And, um, there was a, a six month period where, the stress was just so bad. I was grinding my teeth so severely at night; my teeth were breaking. I went to the dentist, and all, all my back molars were broken.
0: He's like, "You need a night guard." Yeah,
1: <laughs> and um, my jaws would lock in the middle of the night, and it was just, uh, and it was just the nice. stress of you know the 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 book and the information I was uncovering, and then the people I had to deal with, you know. So I tried to employ a certain journalistic approach, you know, and how I covered the trial and stuff. But then there's, you know, real life characters in the neighborhood. And so I played around with that a bit just to make it more interesting. But...
0: Give me an example of a character in, in, the, in old Louisville that's really, that really stands out to you.
1: Well, when you read the book, there's, everyone's favorite character is uh, a character named Candy. And I met Candy years ago uh, in my previous book, uh, which is called Voodoo Days at La Casa Fabulosa. It's kind of a memoir about that haunted house I, I lived in that supposedly haunted house. And it was about the first year when all the weird things happened. And what I discovered is, yeah, I had spooky stuff happen in the house. But it was the real-life characters in the neighborhood that were the fascinating things, I thought. And so one night I was out walking my dog, and there was this little neighborhood cemetery, and uh, I went and sat on a bench, and uh, a voice startled me out of the blue. Someone was sitting on a nearby bench smoking a cigarette, and uh, a person introduced themselves as Candy, and it turns out uh, he lived in a nearby bungalow, but... His name was Randy, actually, but when his wife went to bed, he liked to put on her clothes and go walk around the neighborhood, and when he was dressed as a woman, he liked to be called Candy, and so I had met him, I met her, I only I only saw Candy ever dressed as a woman. I don't know what he looked like as a man. I might have met him as a man, I didn't know about it, but I only ran into Candy when she was dressed as a woman, and so... Um, I had written up this scene in my previous book, and then remember how I said I snuck into the house to see the the basement where Jamie Carroll was um, buried? Well, I snuck down there, and uh, uh, like I said, it was just a warren, a maze-like warren of rooms, and I snuck down there. I found the room where the pit was, and all of a sudden, I smelled cigarette smoke, and a voice said, Well, fancy meeting you here. Guess who it was? Candy candy like 10 years since i had last seen her um she was half the neighborhood was going into the house to see the 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 burial pit where jamie carroll had been
0: i was gonna say are you sure she's not a ghost i know i
1: mean you can't yeah she's just too good a character to make up but it turns out candy belonged to this um Uh, what they call uh, urban explorer group, you know, where they go into abandoned buildings and factories and stuff, places that are off limits. And so she loved to sneak into, you know, abandoned houses and buildings and stuff. And so I just ran into her that night, and she almost gave me a heart attack. Well, then I would – I ran into her several more times throughout the course of me writing the book and stuff. And so she is everyone's favorite character. I mean – it turns out she uh, had some involvement in the local S and M scene and uh, uh, shared some interesting stuff uh, with me, and was just kind of an interesting character. And um, I told people if this ever gets, I told my agent if this ever you know ends up being made into a movie, I get to play the Candy part. That'll be in my contract because Candy looked like a man in a dress. Uh, <laughs> candy was not like an elegant like drag queen female later. No, didn't go through the, like the look full, like you know, in a dress and I will look like a man in a dress. <laughs>
0: like, Hey, my wife just went to bed. Let me throw on her clothes and go outside. Yeah, and
1: so, yeah, she, he always called it that old banshee. And, uh, and then like later on, I would run into her more and more because he said, that old banshee started taking melatonin, and now she snores like a Nazi. I can go out anytime I want and wear whatever clothes I want and stuff. And uh, <laughs> I met her I met her once when his the old banshee was out in Arizona visiting some relatives. So he, he had two weeks all by himself, and uh, I ran into him at a local diner, and he had um, kind of like an Audrey Hepburn-style dress on, like a, a sheath dress, and he had blue eyeshadow, and he had done some makeup, and he actually looked pretty... You know, uh, pretty done up compared to the previous times I had seen him, but yeah, that is probably the most uh, popular character in the book, Candy,
0: the neighborhood. So, so basically, Candy. It sounds like Candy just—it's like a you know, no, it's no big deal. And it's oh, like, yeah, it's just yeah. That's just old Louisville. And that's how old Louisville is. And
1: you know, some people read about some of the characters and like that person is not real and. You can Google the person online, find out, yeah, that person is real, you know. I have a, a good friend of mine. His thing was he just loved to wear German officer uniforms from World War II, you know, out in public. And that's, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: and he that's
0: would. Uh, would Toe in the line. <laughs> yeah,
1: he would do it anyway. I mean, I showed up uh, once when I lived in the previous house and. He was uh, he was on an inner tube in our swimming pool, naked, just floating there. And his his Nazi uniform had been draped over the patio table and stuff. And he had just stopped by for a visit. And his name was Kelly. And people were like that, that guy wasn't real. And half the city knows Kelly Atkins. He was um, he was pretty well known in the restaurant scene. He was like a, a wine captain and a waiter at a lot of different fine dining establishments. So everybody knows him. And he. I mean, he was just like a natural storyteller. Half of half the time, you know, it was like a, a big fish kind of story. You know, there was usually some kind of grain of truth in his stories, but it always got blown way out of proportion. So he's another character that people did. that person does not exist. And he, you talk to anyone in Louisville, half the city knows him. And so, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the best characters you couldn't make up.
0: That is so funny. Now, as we're uh, coming to an end here, is there anything um, about uh, these characters or the characters, you know, Jeffrey and Joey, that you haven't uh, shared with us that we should know? Well,
1: and this is something that I strive to do in the book. I try to remind people that Jamie Carroll was the victim here and he was innocent, and um, this case was kind of sensational, you know, they called it the pink triangle murder as well because the accused killers were gay. um, The victim was gay. So there's a lot of homophobia that reared its ugly head during the trials. And there was a lot of victim shaming because Jamie Carroll, you know, he had, he was a drug dealer and he had a checkered past, but you know, that doesn't justify getting murdered. So um, I try to include People who knew him as a human being and you know loved him and tried to show that his death impact, impacted a lot of people and so um, I you know what I share about Jeffrey and Joey comes from what I found out in the courtroom or people who knew them got in touch with me and told me but um, I really try to humanize Jamie Carroll and, and point out that he was the innocent victim here
0: yeah, and I, I, I think that's great. I think that's the most important thing when you do cover a story like this, where the victim is sometimes forgotten about, and um, because of the other details of the story, yeah. and it's just one of those situations where it's good that you focused on him as you know being a victim. And again, it doesn't matter what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody deserves to be murdered. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, anybody who does. Um, you know, get commit murder should be held accountable. It's just as common sense. Yeah. And so let's say uh somebody would like to pick up your books, where would they be able to find them? Well website?
1: Um uh amazon.com, probably the easiest place. It's on Audible as well, but um your local indie bookseller probably has them. But uh yeah, it's called the Dark Room in Glitterball City and um it's out there so just ask around but uh you know amazon's got them got them all that's for sure
0: and this was you said you said your 13th book yeah
1: this was book number 13
0: all right well lucky number 13 is one hell of a story yeah and uh i will say that uh definitely some characters and the connection between midnight and the garden of good and evil is definitely there and anybody who likes that southern gothic i mm-hmm. think is uh you know would definitely enjoy this book and man uh thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to to join us
1: yeah my pleasure thanks for taking the time to talk to me
0: all right david thank you again you have a wonderful day
1: you too thank you
0: and that will do it for this week's episode of who killed thank you so much to david domine for joining me to discuss his book about the Killing of James Carroll, and that is titled A Dark Room in Glitterball City. And again, thank you to the listeners for joining us for this very wild tale. And again, you can pick that book up on Amazon, and it is uh, a wild ride. If you liked Midnight in a Garden of Good and Evil, then you will like this book as well. And so... Check it out if you guys are interested in knowing what's coming up in the future. You can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. As well as if you're interested in donating to the show, you can do so via the Venmo app with my username at Bill Huffman3. Now, every contribution helps keep these shows uh, running and it doesn't. Uh, Hurt to leave a review. So I appreciate all the time that you guys put into listening. And as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe.
3: True Terrors of Horror. Bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.
2: I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com.